Well, hello and welcome to the Fascist Fashion Expo, where those who've done the worst come to look their best. First up is one of the key founders of fascism, Benito Mussolini. Here he's wearing an original by Italian designer Vestiti Bruti. It's a functional jacket with a formal hat, perfect for suppressing political oppression through every season, whether in a conservative business suit or casually palling around with friends. This brutal cannoli is molto bene. Next up is Josef Stalin. Stalin is sporting a classic Muscovite ensemble from newcomer Svetlana Bryukia, perfect for slaughtering millions of your own countrymen in a paranoid bloody purge. But Uncle Joe also shows us his casual side with this white top of his own design, great for a guy's night out or an intimate evening for two. You tell him he can't wear white year-round. See you in the gulag. And rounding out the evening is none other than Adolf Hitler, our Uber model, the Butcher of Berlin, who can only be described as Demon Kainemag. He's the life of the National Socialist Party in this impressive military regalia from the folks at Schlechtermensch Molda. Whether traveling on holiday or lounging around the house, this Führer is Führer. Come on, Herr Schickelgruber, why so serious? It's not like you're the most hated man in history. Well, the main theme of today's show seems to be military solids with unearned medals, as evidenced by our other models, Augusto Pinochet of Chile, Francisco Franco of Spain, and Idi Amin of Uganda. Looking good, despots. Well, that's all for this show. Thank goodness we won't see these guys again, but we'll see you again at the next Fascist Fashion Expo. Welcome to Wetwired. This is Premium Episode 8 and the latest installment of Fash Boy Summer. Fascists want to raid your closet. Still so ridiculous. <laughs> I'm Julian Paul Butt. And I'm Sean Andis. In our previous Fash Boy Summer episodes, we've talked about Christian nationalists, medieval apocalypticists, and white supremacy. This time around, we look back to the granddaddies of modern fascism in Europe and ask why they hated color so much. And for a special treat on this 4th of July, the day that God created the United States, <laughs> Jules and I are actually in the same room for the first time since we started this show. <laughs> <laughs> we even went to a little parade together. Exactly. We, we saw animals parading down the road in honor of our nation's founding. <laughs> <laughs> and lifted trucks. Oh, yes. Lots also of li in honor of our nation's Lifted trucks, founding. Model A cars. The governor of New Mexico. <laughs> it was all there. <laughs> Colorless, flavorless, minimalist. Observe the clean white walls. Simple white phones with one central button. And an aluminum pole without tinsel. Because it's distracting. It's a perfect utopia, free of any unnecessary flourish. Minimalism seemingly has become the pinnacle of design in Europe and North America. From architecture to fast fashion. Less is more has become a sacred aphorism that's beyond question. From Ikea to Apple, 
The design gods have spoken and colorful complex ornamental design is permanently passé. This attitude isn't simply the clutter-free life Marie Kondo wants you to lead or Frank Costanza's noble struggle against consumerism. It's born out of fascism and the aesthetics of Puritan asceticism. Vibrant, intricate aesthetics are common to indigenous clothes, art, and architecture across the world. It's easy to see the elaborate decorative patterns of the Kurdish people, the Sami, or the Wiendat. Even designs within cultures that simply create the rise of fascism were simplified and minimalized, like the dirndl dresses traditionally worn in Bavaria, which German Nazis repurposed for their mythology of the Übermensch and got rid of the ornamentation at the same time. Even in the 20s, Art Nouveau dominated European art and architecture, with nature imitating reliefs of vines, curls, and flowers. Design from color to shape has been actively wiped of flavor and diversity and minimalism proliferated within authoritarian ideologies and regimes in the 20th century. Max Weber describes the Puritan attitude towards playful living in the spirit of capitalism and the Protestant ethic, which we discussed in our first episode. Let us now try to clarify the points in which the Puritan idea of the calling and the premium it placed upon ascetic conduct was bound directly to influence and development of a capitalistic way of life. As we have seen, the asceticism turned with all its force against one thing, the spontaneous enjoyment of life and all it had to offer. Impulsive enjoyment of life, which leads away both from work in a calling and from religion, was as such the enemy of rational asceticism, whether in the form of Senorial sports? Is that senorial? I think so. Oh, people will tell us. <laughs> Whether in the form of senorial sports or the enjoyment of the dance hall or the public house of the common man, the theater was obnoxious to the Puritans, and with the strict exclusion of the erotic and of nudity from the realm of toleration, a radical view of either literature or art could not exist. The conceptions of idle talk, of superfluities, and of vain ostentation all designations of an irrational attitude without objective purpose, thus not ascetic, and especially not serving the glory of God, but of man, were always at hand to serve in deciding in favor of sober utility as against any artistic tendencies. This was especially true in the case of decoration of the person, for instance, clothing. So there were joy killers. Absolutely, from the beginning. <laughs> The Protestant ethic, chiefly Puritanism and Calvinism, which have become the roots of modern secular capitalist culture today, hold a view of recreation, pleasure, and just about anything outside of strict use for utility as decadent, savage, and immature. This precludes the vibrant colors and ornate designs in dress, art, and architecture. In sex, it means missionary only and you'd better not have any fun while you're doing it. It was a dichotomy between the rational, sober piety and the irrational, immoral person under the yoke of the passions and the temptations, not the musical artists in either case. I don't think they listened to either of them. No, I don't think so. From the book Chromophobia by David Batchelor. Chromophobia manifests itself in many and varied attempts to purge color from culture, to devalue color, to diminish its significance, to deny its complexity. More specifically, this purging of color is usually accomplished in one of two ways. In the first, color is made out to be the property of some foreign body, usually the feminine, the oriental, the primitive, the infantile, the vulgar, the queer, or the pathological. In the second, color is relegated to the realm of the superficial, the supplementary, the inessential, or the cosmetic. In one, color is regarded as alien and therefore dangerous. 
in the other it is perceived merely as a secondary quality of experience, and thus unworthy of serious consideration. Color is dangerous, or it is trivial, or it is both. It is typical of prejudices to conflate the sinister and the superficial. Either way, color is routinely excluded from the higher concerns of the mind. It is other to the higher values of Western culture. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe writes, Savage nations, uneducated people, and children have a great predilection for vivid colors. Yikes. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> from the Secret Lives of Color by Cassia St. Clair. A certain distaste for color runs through Western culture like a ladder in a stocking. Wow, that's colorful. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a British phrase. I had to look a, it up. A ladder in a stocking. <laughs> Many classical writers were dismissive. Color was a distraction from the true glories of art, line, and form. It was seen as self-indulgent and later sinful, a sign of dissimulation and dishonesty. The bluntest expression of this comes from the 19th century American writer Herman Melville, who wrote that colors are but subtle deceits, not actually inherent in substances, but only laid on from without, so that all deified nature absolutely paints like a harlot. <laughs> God damn. Uh, I mean, it's, it's well written. <laughs> but arguments like these are very old indeed. The Protestants, for example, express their intellectual simplicity, severity, and humility in a palette dominated by black and white. Bright colors like red, orange, yellow, and blue were removed both from the walls of their churches and from their wardrobes. As colors came to take on meanings and cultural significance within societies, attempts were made to restrict their use. The most notorious expression of this phenomenon was through the sumptuary laws. While these were passed in ancient Greece and Rome, and examples can be found in China and Japan, they found their fullest expression in Europe from the mid-12th century, before tailing off again in the early modern period. Such laws could touch on anything from diet to dress and furnishings, and sought to enforce social boundaries by encoding the social strata into a clear visual system. The peasants, in other words, should eat and dress like peasants. Craftsmen should eat and dress like craftsmen, and so on. Color was a vital signifier in the social language. Dull, earthy colors like russet were explicitly confined to the meanest rural peasant, while bright, saturated ones like scarlet were the preserve of a select few. The dull, earthy colors mentioned by Cassia are exactly what we see in the whole male apparel corner of the department store. It's hard to find anything outside of navy, khaki, black, or gray in North American men's section. I think this is from compounded influences, from the austerity of what is taken to be serious, as synonymous with this humorlessness, with patriarchal mythos that men should be exactly this, in some sort of a simplified stoicism, and with the converse that color and ornamentation are, in fact, effeminate. The dandy in the 18th and 19th centuries, by contrast, exemplified the opposite of this, in a kind of romanticism that rejected bourgeois society in bohemian circles, while also, oddly, setting themselves apart from the sans-culottes. Now, culottes. So, what's strange to me about that, in particular, is that they were kind of rejecting in both directions, with this affront to culture. Romanticism demonstrates, in fact, that rebellion is part and parcel of dandyism. One of its objectives is appearances. In its conventional forms, dandyism admits a nostalgia for ethics. It is only honor, degraded as a point of honor. 
But at the same time, it inaugurates an aesthetic which is still valid in our world. An aesthetic of solitary creators who are obstinate rivals of a god they condemn. From Romanticism onwards, the artist's task will not only be to create a world, or to exalt beauty for its own sake, but also to define an attitude. And this one is from Umberto Eco's Ur-Fascism. Besides, disagreement is a sign of diversity. Ur-Fascism grows up and seeks for consensus by exploiting and exacerbating the natural fear of difference. The first appeal of a fascist or prematurely fascist movement is an appeal against the intruders. Thus, Ur-Fascism is racist by definition. And in this sense, the intruders is anything that's going to be different. The intruder could be the feminine, the intruder could be foreigners, the intruder could be a different race that's already there, the intruder could be somebody with a different lifestyle or, or different sexual preference. The, the intruder can be anything that's, that's other than whatever this, this mass homogenous movement is embodying. Yeah, absolutely. And so, it, you know, the, the whole theme that's running right now is this stamping out of any sort of difference from, from, in this case, just the color scheme that's available to people. We've reduced it so that you don't get to wear anything except for this very select palette. And that's not new. That's something that's been done over and over and over again. Basically, every time we, we find people living inside of a repressive society. We see the effect of this subtly in some cinematic effects that are done in multiple movies. Not even necessarily to do with fascism per se, but when you, when you look at films and TV shows that are cutting away to a dark or repressive era... Uh, think Stalinist yeah. Russia. They always or... cut the light and put it in gray tones. That's exactly it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everything is everything is like permanently underlit in Stalinist Russia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was no joy <laughs> ever. Which... Nobody was ever happy at any moment.